Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the podcast. As always, this is Brain Drain with Connor McCann. I am none other than Connor McCann. And despite the fact that I'm here in Asheville right now, and that's not, that's not Nashville, that's Asheville, Asheville, North Carolina, and Western North Carolina. The very beautiful Appalachian Mountains are all around us here, but I'm here. I am sweating my ass off. It's hot as a motherfucker today. You know what I could use? I could use some of that weather I had back in San Francisco back home. Nice little 55 degrees, maybe 60 tops. Total layer of fog, just like eclipsing the sun, windy like hell. I could use that right now. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's more what I'm used to. I've been here a couple of years out here in North Carolina, down south. And I'm still getting used to it. I'm still sweating my ass off as soon as it gets over 80. But it's not going to stop the show. It's not going to stop what we got going on today. And I'm excited, man. This is the first episode I've ever done that is fully about my hometown, San Francisco. I probably told you guys a million times already. We're only in episode six. Somehow I probably bring up the fact that I'm from San Francisco at some point in every episode. I'd be surprised if I didn't. I'd be surprised if there's one episode that I put out right now where San Francisco didn't get brought up somehow. And I'm not doing all that because I think it's the shit. I'm representing, I think I'm the shit because I'm from San Francisco, not at all. It's a very distinct place. It formed who I am as a person. I like talking about it. Even if I, since I moved, I've been back once. I have absolutely no plans to move back. I'd be interested to hear people's reasonings why I wouldn't want to move back to my hometown, but I'm not going back. That's not going to happen. But I still like to talk about the place. So from between 1983 and 2015, I didn't live anywhere else but San Francisco. This, this is where I lived. Born, raised, bred into adulthood, into my 30s. I lived all over the city. I'm from a neighborhood called Bernal Heights. I'm from Cortland Avenue. So that's kind of on the south, southern, eastern part of the city for people that don't know. For us from San Francisco, we don't even really talk about the city like that. You won't ever hear somebody say, I'm from West San Francisco, I'm from North San Francisco. We have our, we have our neighborhoods. I'm from Bernal Heights. I want to say... I want to say I lived in like four or five different neighborhoods. So let's let's try to figure that out. Between 83 and 2015, I lived in Bernal Heights. I lived in the Richmond. I lived in the Marina, which... Sorry, I just, I just had to barf thinking about my time living in the Marina. And, uh, you know, I lived a block off Polk Street. So I guess you can call that area Polk Gulch, downtown. That's the last place I lived. I left the state a year later, and I haven't looked back. But my intention here isn't just to talk about the city or talk random bullshit about myself or my own experiences in the city, no. But it's my intention to talk about the city and to do so in the spirit of this show, which means highlighting some interesting, maybe unexpected stories from throughout the city's history. So with that, let's get to it. San Francisco's Chinatown is the oldest Chinatown in North America, and it's the largest Chinese community outside of Asia. So as I stated in the intro, San Francisco is a city of neighborhoods, and you could have two neighborhoods that are next to each other that couldn't be any more different. If you want to see that, you can go down to 18th and Mission or 16th and Mission. You can look at what it looks like up there. You can give yourself maybe a 20-minute walk up the street, depending on how fast you walk, because there's some steep-ass hills back home for people that want to visit. Bring your walking shoes. You can walk up the street. You end up in the Castro. Those two places are within walking distance. You almost feel like you could throw a rock into the air and throw it high enough from Mount Sutro can land in the mission. They couldn't be more different from each other. And Chinatown in San Francisco is even more distinct 
you know when you're there, it changes. You hit a corner, every not everything, but a lot of things are in Chinese. There's a lot of flags. There's just it's it's almost an entirely Asian neighborhood. And it's a very populous neighborhood. So there's a lot of people there and it's very distinct. And it's been that way. It's been that way for a very long time. When I was back in San Francisco in 2019, so like I said, I moved in 2016. I went back in 2019 with my girlfriend. She'd always wanted to visit. She's not from San Francisco. She's not from here either, but she just wanted to check it out. I was interested to see what it would be like to go back. And I can say this, Chinatown still looked and felt exactly the same as it had my whole life. And there could be people that would say who are from that community that could say, nah, Connor, it's changed this way and that way and that way. And that's what's up. But from an outsider's perspective, I, I, it still feels like the same place that it's always been since I've been going there as a kid. So on this day that we were there, we were just, you know, walking through the neighborhood. And in a little alley, they were having a lion dance and a martial arts exposition. There was older people there. There was older martial artists. There was older just regular folks. There was kids from the neighborhood. There was kids that were participating, doing the exhibition. And I was like, man, this is what's up, man. Like, they're celebrating their culture, not at the expense of anybody else. These are some of the things we like to do. This is what we do. We're going to celebrate it. We're going to get the kids involved. They're going to be proud to be Chinese. I got no problem with that. I got no problem with that. I'm, I'm proud to be Irish. I feel like be proud to be who you are. The moment that it crosses over into you're now so proud of who you are that you think the next person who's not you is something less than you, you're better because you're this, then you're on some bullshit. I didn't get anything like that. I'm a big ass white dude. Nobody tripped off. I was just sitting there watching it. My, my girlfriend is also not Asian, does not look Asian. Nobody tripped. People were just celebrating themselves. It was really cool to see. The fucking 30 Stockton, which passes through Chinatown, it was still packed. There was people everywhere. People were cooking food. You could smell everything. Like I said, in a city that's become, to me, a native San Franciscan, San Francisco's unrecognizable. I went back there. I was like, some of the shit still looks the same. A lot of the shit doesn't look the same. And I'm also not going to be the dude who's some old motherfucker that says stuff like, well, in my day, it was like this, and now it's like this, and it's bad. I'm not going out like that. I can say that we used to have a culture in the city. Each neighborhood had a culture in the city. Bernal Heights had a culture. Chinatown had a culture. Mission had a culture. North Beach had a culture. That got taken away from us. And it got sold out because people wanted to be in San Francisco and they were willing to pay anything to be there. And these people were looking for jobs. They wanted to work in certain industries. And those industries were looking for people. And they didn't care what happened to the people that were already there. It's messed up. It's messed up. It was still really cool to see Chinatown, though, be Chinatown and not be some other shit. Not be some shit like what happened to the Mission or what happened to the Fillmore. What's happening now to uh, the Bayview and Hunter's Point. For Chinatown to still be Chinatown, that made me happy. The origins of the neighborhood date back to 1850, one year after California was admitted to the Union of the United States. The neighborhood was founded by 300 quote-unquote settlers to the city who arrived from Guangdong, or as we would call it in English, Canton. Many, if not all of these original 300 people that first showed up to found Chinatown were attracted by gold. Figured the gold rush in 1849 was only a year behind him. It wasn't just Chinese people coming to San Francisco. It was everybody. Everybody was looking to move to the city to get rich. It doesn't sound all that different from now. It isn't any different from now. 
in time in the years following the gold rush, many Chinese, and very famously so, was set to work on both the Central Pacific Railroad and the Transcontinental Railroad. And these railroads would not have been built without Chinese labor. If Chinese people didn't say, I'm going to go do this very dangerous job, it's not like now. There was no, no relatively modern technology at that time to go do this. And you're going and doing all this digging and all the laying of track. You're doing all this shit by hand. Unless you're John Henry the Steel, driving <laughs> man, and you're if you're a regular motherfucker, like that's gonna take some years off your life. And Chinese folks at that time said, "I don't give a fuck. I'm willing to go get it done." So much respect, much respect. Those projects wouldn't have been completed without them. And while the Chinese were celebrated at first when they showed up, it didn't take long for people to start talking shit about them. There is even a newspaper editorial article calling for a special legislation against the community, meaning these same people that are doing something that's going to benefit everybody. Everybody is going to, well, I'm going to not say everybody because there are a lot of native people that lived on those lands in between the railroad lines. They sure as fuck didn't benefit from it at all. From everybody else that benefited from it, they were very thankful that these folks were going to work, that they were going to go work a job that they didn't feel like doing. But of course, this turned against them. This article about special legislation against the Chinese neighborhood, this is coming in 1854. This is only four years after people even started coming to the city. And unfortunately, it's sad to say, in those days and now, folks of Asian descent, not just Chinese people, but anybody who, somebody that's a fucking idiot that wants to go attack a stranger because they look a certain way, they're gonna attack anybody that quote unquote looks Chinese. That could be a Japanese person, Korean person, a person from Vietnam, a person from anywhere. It could be a person from anywhere that, has, that hasn't that has done shit to somebody. And just having that appearance, it's good enough for random violence to happen to you. It's definitely good enough for stereotyping. Sadly, that hasn't changed either. Then is now. As in a lot of the stories that I will be telling on this show, then is now, then is now. There isn't any difference, just the surroundings are a little different. What we wear is a little different. What we distract ourselves with, like fucking podcasts like this, thank you for listening. You wouldn't have been able to distract yourself with this in 1854. But you can now. That's different, but who we are as people hasn't changed. And I'll say in the present time, I think it's particularly stereotyping along with the anti-Chinese rhetoric from our former president. It's, it's really contributed to this spasm of violence that we experienced recently. I haven't heard much about it lately. You know how it goes with stories here. Something gets known, it takes off huge, it's everywhere, and then it's nowhere. It is what it is. I hope, really, I, I hope that folks can smarten up a little bit to the point where they can say, this random Asian person on the street hasn't done shit to me. This is just an Asian person. That's it. It's a person whose ancestors came from Asia. That's it. But we can't figure it out now. Folks couldn't figure it out back then. And these things can't exist without there being some kind of effect on the targeted community. And what effect did this negative attention have on the people living in Chinatown at this time? And what about the massive immigration from China around this time? What did that have as well? Along with the massive immigration from China during this time and since, what effect did that have as well? Ultimately, it took on a lot of different forms, but the form that is most pertinent to our story here is the creation of the Tongs. So at their core, Tongs are just associations to help recent immigrants from China 
get acclimated to life in America. They can provide English classes. They can provide some financial assistance. They can help you get a job. They can introduce you to people that, let's say you want to start a business. Well, this person has the products that you need, and this person can rent you out the space to sell them in. Tongs can connect the dots for people that are moving here that understand absolutely nothing and don't know what to do. That's what tongs at their core are about, and that's what they continue on as in this day. If I had to say there was one facet of what tongs contribute that I'm most familiar with on a personal level, it's that a lot of tongs run Chinese schools. So these are schools for people that, usually it's kids that were born in America. So a lot of my classmates, I've known a gang of kids that went to Chinese school. Unfortunately, I don't know a single one that was like, yeah, going to school on Saturday, that's the shit. Like <laughs> People were just like, man, I don't want to do this shit. And my parents make me. Ultimately, those things that the schools were trying to teach, understanding your own language, Cantonese in this case, understanding and appreciating your culture, kids aren't really the best with those things. I'm very lucky that I'm a weirdo because when my dad started breaking Irish culture down to me as a kid, I clung to it. A lot of kids are like, man, I want to go play football. I want to watch a movie. I want to play some video games. I want to do some other shit. The last thing I want to do is go to school. But maybe as some of those kids got older, maybe they appreciated what they learned. I don't know. The first Tong was formed as a rebellious secret society to oppose the Manchu dynasty. So the last Han dynasty was called the Ming. They fell. They fell, I believe, sometime in the 1600s. But the Manchus had overthrown them. And there were a lot of these different groups that popped up at this time. Because I, I think because it was the last, the last ethnic Han, which is most, most people in China are Han. The last ethnic Han dynasty fell as the Ming, and then it was foreigners after that. It was Europeans for part of the time. Then it was secularism, a, a step away from the traditional roots, a step away from traditional everything under communism, and a hell of a lot of just chaos and death and warfare and the Japanese invading and everything awful happening. A lot of people still look back on that Ming dynasty fondly, as kind of a golden time, and perhaps rightfully so. And this first Tong, this first Tong that was created, centered itself in Guangdong, where a lot of people would end up coming to San Francisco from. It makes sense that the same kind of concept of a benevolent, of a benevolent society to help people out, to strengthen the core of brotherhood amongst like people in a foreign land, it, it makes sense, and it makes sense that it has that origin strengthening each other against a foreign invader. Most of the Chinese folks that came to America at this time, if not damn near all of them, were men because they were coming as laborers. They were coming as workers. They didn't bring their families. They just came to, to work, make some money, and be able to send for them later. That's, a, that's the way a lot of people come to America now. It's not uncommon. I think, um, I think Bob Marley did that for a while before he was really famous. He was living in Delaware, like working at, you know, working at a factory, sending back for folks. So because it's, you know, it's a lot of men, if not only men, and it's thousands of men, the Tongs actually helped these men obtain wives. A lot of times just from China or trying to, you know, trying to figure something out with a few women that were around as well. They would act as uh, matchmakers. This became harder because following the Page Act, Chinese women were not allowed to move to America. That's right. I mean, the, the idea of a Muslim ban or anything like that, 
it's not a new one in American history. In 1874, we said, nah, you guys can't bring women here. You're not going to be able to survive without having a woman in your life. And you're, you're planning your roots. If, if that's, you know, if that's the type of person you are, if that's what you need in your life, you're going to have to have that. Especially at a time when women did a lot of the things in the house that men didn't do. So these dudes were coming over here after being taken care of their whole lives. And now they got to figure it out on the fly. Nah, for, <laughs> I'm not trying to have that. I need the company of a woman and I need everything else that a woman can contribute to my life. And I want to have some kids. So the Tongs would do that. It went even further, though, than just banning Chinese women. There was something that was called the Chinese Exclusion Act that just said, fuck it. 1875. You know what? The railroad is built. We already got the railroad done. We did that shit. 1869. You know what? We've given you guys a couple years to slide. Fuck it. Chinese Exclusion Act. None of you guys can go. And this is just like the Sin Hala Only Act from episode one, which is just incredibly explicit in its racism and discrimination. So if you had, if you were like, well, I don't know if you meant my kind of Chinese person. I think you mean those Chinese people over there. Nah, motherfucker, you too. All Chinese people cannot come here now. And it's, it's worth noting that pretty much every group that came here in any numbers had to go through this at some point. I can say I belong to two groups, Irish people, Muslims. Three groups, really, Americans, because as soon as I leave the country, that's what people think I am anyway. That's what I am. In America, for our international listeners, we still hold on to these uh, nationalities or national identities, even, you know, especially for a lot of the Irish American people here. Sometimes I, I'll ask people, like, what county is your family from? What part of Ireland is your family from? They're like, fuck, I don't know. I have no clue. And I'm like, damn, but you still claim it. And you claim it harder than I do. Maybe, perhaps, it's a legacy of what Irish folks had to go through when we first got here. Chinese folks had to go through it really badly, as we can see. And it's not just like people were passing laws. No, folks that get attacked on the street, just like now, everywhere you go, people are going to be looking down their nose at you and they want you to disappear or die. You're not going to be able to get a job. Nobody's going to want to even talk to you. You might not be able to even talk to anybody yet because you don't know how to speak English. But you're not going to be very well motivated to learn if every time you step outside of Chinatown, this is the bullshit you have to deal with. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what happens to a group, be that a whole class of people, that could be a whole nationality, that could be a race. What happens when everybody in that group is labeled persona non grata? They're excluded. They're treated like an enemy. Like you're treated like some outside invader in your own country. You could be born here and you're still treated like an enemy. Also, then is now. People are just running up on people, just punching them in the face, trying to hurt them, trying to kill them, just because they belong to this group of people. What does that do to you? You belong to that group of people. And this could be a reality every time you leave the house. What does that do? Well, first and foremost, there could be a kind of tendency towards insularity. You can say, you know what, because all this stuff is waiting for me, I'd rather just not step out. I'd rather just stay with my own folks. I'll stay right here in Chinatown because everything outside of there is bad for me. So I'll just keep it right here. There could also be a pretty understandable tendency towards feeling some hostility or even showing some hostility towards the society that rejects you. People got to remember, a lot of times when people move to countries like America or they move to countries like Germany, England, wherever, France, 
a lot of times they don't want to leave where they're from. They love where they're from. They never envision themselves leaving this place. A lot of times I want to leave, they do. Or if they have the means to leave or they try to find the means to leave, but they want to get the fuck out of there and they're trying to make it happen. There's the opposite for a lot of folks. They're happy where they are. This is the culture, all their families here. They get to see everybody, all their friends. They've been here their whole life and then they got to leave. This could be because there's been a natural disaster. There's been a famine. There's some huge outbreak of disease or there's warfare. That seems to be the most common reason now that people leave countries is either the economy is so bad and there's so much discrimination against people, maybe if they're poor, belong to a certain group, that they can't stay there anymore. There's nothing there for them unless they're just going to be content to either be broke beyond living in poverty. Living in absolute, the worst poverty that we have in America is possibly still a hell of a lot better than what they're in and always will be. And there's still at least some opportunities here. Or their group is under some kind of threat or even outright attack or outright genocide. And if they stay where they are, they're going to die. And if you're like, well, you shouldn't be coming here illegally, put yourself in the same position. Ask yourself, okay, some shit breaks out here. Shit gets real. Shit gets real ugly. And you belong to the group that they're coming around and killing. Are you just going to stay? Either you'll fight. You'll say, I'm, I'm not going out like that. I'm not just going to let you come and kill me. Or you'll say, I'm getting the fuck out of here. And the place that you go to next, you might not even want to be there, but you can't be anywhere else. And then when you get to the new place, the place you don't want to be in, they shit on you. They shit on you. Seemingly every opportunity that they get to shit on you, you are shat on. So after all this, having to leave your, your homeland for perhaps some pretty traumatic reasons, coming to a place you don't want to be, not knowing anybody, not having a dollar to your name, not being able to earn a dollar. Because when you show up, they say, get the fuck out of here. We don't hire Chinese people. After all this, after leaving the neighborhood and getting your ass kicked by a bunch of people because that's what they wanted to do that night, because they wanted to beat up an Asian person, after all this shit, you might just say, you know, fuck it. I'm going to do what I'm going to do here. I'm going to lose either way. And whether the man says it's right or wrong or legal or illegal, I'm going about it my own way with my own people in, in our own manner. And it's not like there weren't a lot of opportunities to make some money in Chinatown. And yeah, a lot of these opportunities weren't legal, but the Tongs embraced them all the same. The primary crimes of this era that were the money makers in Chinatown were not that different than the primary crimes that make a lot of people money today. Drugs, specifically opium, prostitution, and gambling. Which, like, if you trip now, there might be some overlapping part of Nevada where drugs in some capacity, namely weed, weed's legal, prostitution's legal, and gambling's legal. There might be some jurisdiction where they combine all three of these, these things, and I'm sure they're making a hell of a lot of money off them. But that's what the Tongs were into. Gambling was definitely a big moneymaker in Chinatown. It still is. And it still is. Just, there's an author named Bill Lee. He was a member of a gang that we're actually going to discuss. He said in an interview that gambling is not stigmatized, once again, in his words, in Chinese culture. It's just something you do with your friends. 
It's not like drinking your money away or it's not looked at like that. It's just something that people come together, they do, and they throw money down to make it more exciting. But being that gambling at that time, and like I said, according to Bill Lee, not according to Connor McCann, Bill Lee is a better expert on Chinatown than I am, so I, I definitely trust his words on this. But even though gambling was an accepted part of society, you couldn't move there if you're a woman. So prostitution was the biggest money earner. And yeah, it, it makes total sense. Yeah, if it's illegal for women to come and you got women, you're going to make money. As it was illegal for Chinese women to move to San Francisco, they had to do this clandestinely. A lot of these women were forced into this journey, meaning in modern times, they were trafficked. Or in just straight up plain terms, they were enslaved. Once they got here, they would be forced to sell their bodies to pretty much whoever came in that day. Didn't matter how many. Didn't matter if they wanted to do it or not. That's what they were forced to do every single day, and they kept none of the money from it. They did, however, get to keep the venereal diseases that got passed to them by the clients. And then these diseases would get uh, spread around to the greater community. And it's the men of this era, and they're documented fighting. And they're fighting over control of the prostitution trade, over the slavery trade, basically, the forced labor trade. That's what they're fighting for control over. So the various uh, Tong leaders and well-known high-ranking gangsters and the hatchet men, they're discussed a lot during this time. The women forced to do the work aren't really talked about at all, unless they were like someone like Atoy, who was a prostitute that became a madam, so she pretty much was enslaved, became the enslaver. And if women are really talked about at all, aside from famous high, like high-profile quote-unquote figures like her, all they're known for is spreading around venereal diseases. Which, if you got a trip, when they first got brought into the situation that they're in, they didn't have any. They didn't come here with that. So somebody was spreading it to them, but they end up getting blamed for it. So be it. That's, that's kind of how it works here in this country sometimes. This duality of the tongs. The benefactor on one hand, but the drug dealer, the killer, and the enslaver on the other. That would continue up until present times. They were easy to find, too. All you had to do was just walk down the street and you would see their building. Like, I can't even, I can't tell you how many times I've walked by the Hopsing Tong building. It's open. So they openly do business. The only other organized crime group, I wouldn't call Tongs an organized crime group, though. I would say that some people within the Tongs are criminals. And they're criminals that are very organized, for sure. But I wouldn't paint the Tongs head to toe as organized crime groups. It's just not true. Because they exist in kind of a gray manner, they can openly organize. And the only other group that you can say that about that is an organized crime group is maybe the Hells Angels or the different outlaw biker groups because they have a public presence, but they are involved in crime as well. But you can also say the Yakuza. The Yakuza, you can, you can see the Yakuza offices just on the streets in Tokyo and throughout Japan. It's like that here in San Francisco with the Tongs. A 17-year-old kid who was nicknamed Shrimp Boy, a name given to him by his grandma, he came to San Francisco, and he found them pretty easy to find as well. Then again, Raymond Chow knew what he was looking for. By his own admission, by the time he had moved to San Francisco from Hong Kong, Raymond had been gangbanging for almost 10 years. As a kid, his father had a barber shop, but he gambled that away, and he pretty much gambled everything that the family owned and everything in their lifestyle away, too. 
they ended up being forced to live in a one-room shack when Raymond was eight, and then the shack ended up catching fire. In the years before his birth, during the communist takeover of China, many organized crime groups called triads began moving to Hong Kong and setting up a presence after being suppressed. An entire part of the city called the Kowloon Walled City was entirely controlled by organized crime. Something akin to like the Cabrini Green housing projects in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in Chicago, but on a much more massive scale. And by the time Raymond was born, there were 300,000 plus triad members in just Hong Kong alone. When Raymond approached the Hop Sing Tong building, he claimed that he had a letter that served as an introduction from his gang to whoever he met in San Francisco. I don't know how true this is. I don't, I don't even know if this is a practice. If anybody who's a gang member or organized crime member wants to tell me, uh, you can hit me up on Instagram and DM me about that. But he had an introductory letter, and he seemed to be good to go. He became a member of what were called the Hop Sing Boys, which were, like a lot of the different gangs at that time, that was just a gang that was a generation of youth that came up and were recruited by the Hop Sing Tong. During this time, possibly even to this day, Tongs had these feeder gangs that they could recruit from if they found intelligent people, if they found resourceful people, they found ruthless people, people that were willing to take orders, people that didn't ask questions, people that were special in some way, people that had a specialty, those people could find their way into the Tong and did. But they started out as like teenagers. Teenagers and kids, a lot of times you would see these kids in the 90s hanging out on Jackson Street. We all knew about the Jackson Street Boys. I'm not going to speak on them because that's for a different video I have coming up, which we'll get to later. But it was just a generation of kids that were the Hop Sing Tongs Boys. They were the Hop Sing Boys. And they allowed the Hop Sing Tongs to have kind of like a level of plausible deniability. Similar to what we have with the CIA, the CIA could go do some shit and fuck it up. And there's a lot of backlash the president can say, man, it was just some rogue people. It got out of hand. We'll take care of it. Or it's already been taken care of. Or those people have already been taken care of. Yada, blah, blah. But I didn't know anything. I'm not guilty of this. This totally wasn't my idea. Same idea here with the gangs for the Tongs. So for them, this was perfect. The Tongs were not above the street activities. They were with those kind of activities. But they needed to stay legitimate or at least be able to claim legitimacy to be able to exist. This period, the late 70s, it was a super duper 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 violent time in Chinatown's history. It was violent in Chinatown. I believe it was calculated that somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 gang murders happened in about a 10 year period just in Chinatown or with gangs fighting over Chinatown, which we'll discuss in a second. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of young people. That's a lot of lives. That's a lot of people hurt. It was like this in Chinatown. But in America as a whole at that time, it was bad. The late 70s were a very, very violent time. Very A lot of serial killers, like a lot of gangbanging shit going on. Chicago was going crazy. Bloods and Crips were going crazy. And it got worse in the 80s, I can say that. It got, it got much worse. It would definitely intensify with the arrival of crack and all the high-powered weaponry that people could access now that they had more money. But 
even just in the 70s at that time, for there to be 50 gang-related deaths in 10 years, five gang-related deaths a year, just between a couple of gangs, that's a lot. And there were a lot of different underlying causes for this, and there's a lot of opinions out there as to why America was just so violent at that time. There was so much crime. There's a lot of things that people have said, but at least in Chinatown, during this time, it's a little easier to define. There's two gangs that are central to this conflict, and overall, really, three gangs central to the story. Watching, which in Cantonese means Chinese youth, the Joe Boys, and the Hopsing Boys. Watching was founded in the late 60s by immigrants from Hong Kong. Their origins are kind of the same for most gangs, which was they initially banded together because people were fucking with them. They'd be in class, the other American-born kids... Uh, even as we'll talk about the American-born Chinese kids who they called quote-unquote the ABCs would fuck with them and they felt like they were fucking with them, making fun of their accents, making fun of their clothes, kind of food they would eat. And people got tired of this shit. So they would start band together, band a group. Usually it wasn't even a gang. It was just a group of friends who was tired of getting fucked with. And they said, okay, the next one to fuck with one of us has to fuck with all of us. That was the origin of watching. They really just wanted to protect themselves Primarily, though, from their cousins born in America. And I can say that this is something that I saw. So I went to a high school that's called Raul Wallenberg Traditional High School. I went there for two years before they told me to get the fuck out. But the school's predominantly, at least at that time, the school's predominantly Asian. So the schools I went to before were either super mixed or like my main middle school is predominantly Latino. This was the first time I came in contact with a lot of Asian folks. I've known Asian kids my whole life, but I primarily grew up with Cambodians, Filipinos, Vietnamese, like Southeast Asian, like folks from Laos, Uh, some Chinese folks too, but not as much. I wasn't really exposed to Chinese culture as it is until I got to high school. And sometimes I would see this kind of conflict play out between the Chinese kids that were born in America And the kids, there were still kids that were arriving from China and especially from Vietnam at that time in the late 90s. People were still showing up at that time. And some of the kids that were coming here, I saw more so in middle school. I saw in high school sometimes too. The kids that were coming here from China kind of would separate themselves a little bit from the Americans. Like all the kids that just spoke primarily Cantonese all just would hang out together. You would almost never hear them speaking English. And I would see those kids kind of branch off Some of the uh, American kids, they would call them fobs, which means fresh off the boat. I thought it was funny because I was like, man, you could say that about my dad or me. Like, (laughs) you know, I'm some of the immigrants, so I guess you could say I'm I'm a generation removed from being a fob. But it was was like that. I want to say now I haven't heard too much about it, but I'm kind of out of the loop. Also, a lot of the kids that were coming, especially during the 70s, a lot of the kids, they already belonged to gangs. So they spoke Chinese. Perfect. Don't speak English even better because it means accidentally saying some shit in public and having the cops over here. That's not going to happen unless the cop speaks Chinese, which during that time, almost none did. Um, a lot do now. There's a, there's definitely a lot of Chinese-American and Chinese-born cops in San Francisco. But during the 70s, nah, uh, not a lot. It would progress, though. Most importantly, like these kids knew how to run the streets. Like they knew how to carry out certain tasks. This all the more made them attractive to the Tongs. By the time I got to high school, like I said, this was still going on, but it was more just like kind of dying down. 
it wasn't like it was in the 60s for sure, not even close. But I still remember some beefs and I still remember there being some fights and I still remember stuff happening between the guys that were coming here from China and the folks that were already here. That wasn't the issue, though, between these two gangs, predominantly watching in the Joe Boys. That wasn't the issue between them because most of the guys in these gangs were all from Hong Kong anyway. Of all the gangs at that time, watching was the most powerful. They started out just as, like I said, kids protecting themselves. And then they they started working as like lookouts for gambling establishments and lookouts for whorehouses and shit in Chinatown. So they got co-opted and they got incorporated into the Hopsing Tong. And as such, they were allied with the Hopsing Boys. The rivals were called the Joe Boys, and they were founded by Joe Fong and other people who used to be members of Hua Ching and left for different reasons. As I've said, there were a lot of murders at this time. There were a lot of killings at this time. And there was a killing on July 4th, 1977, which killed a 16-year-old Joe Boy and injured another teenage member of the Joe Boys. This incident was centered around the trade in fireworks, and there was also a lot of disrespect going on, particularly the graves of Joe Boy members were being disrespected, which it's it's bad enough the guys are dead, but like all this all this stuff about people dissing dead homies and smoking packs and all this shit, none of this shit is new. People have been disrespecting their ops forever. It's funny that the young generation now gets blamed for a lot of goofy shit that people were doing 40 years before they were born. But so be it. This is this is what it was. The disrespect of Graves particularly ratcheted up the tension a lot. The Joe Boys had a plan, and it could be seen as like a decapitation strategy of sorts. So they had been planning on hitting watching for this disrespect and for these killings that happened in the projects where these these kids were, you know, selling fireworks that's where we used to go. We, Whenever we wanted fireworks for like 4th of July, we just hit Chinatown. Like, <laughs> like the same way when I was a teenager and young adult, if I wanted to get some, some herb, I'd just go to Hate Street like go, or go to, go to Powell Street downtown. I know someone that sells weed down there. So, uh, And rest in peace to him. I'm not going to say his name. But yeah, if I, if I wanted to go do that and when we were kids, we'd just go to Chinatown. Somebody would step to us like, hey, what's up? You guys want some fireworks? Say yes. We would do the little hand-to-hand transaction on the street, just like buying some weed on Hate Street, and we'd go home, set the shit off. That's what there. There was so much money centered around that because fireworks are so illegal in California. They were making a killing, but they were doing killing because of it. And the Joe Boys decided, as I said, they had a decapitation strategy. They were going to go for wiping everybody out all at once. They heard that some of the leadership of Watching was going to be at the Golden Dragon restaurant. The Golden Dragon restaurant was actually co-owned by a Hopsing Tong member. And thus it kind of further legitimized it as a target for what they were planning to go do. The plan was pretty simple. Just go in there and just kill everybody. And on September 4th, 1977, that's what they attempted to do. As gangsters and tourists alike sat and ate at the restaurant, three dudes with stocking masks ran in there and just started shooting. They just started shooting. Shooting random innocent people. There were gangsters in attendance. The subject of this podcast was at the Golden Dragon restaurant that night. Something that I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of people know Raymond Chow. Shrimp Boy is a very well-known person. My mom knows who he is. And we're talking about all this today. Just, you know, I I told her I was going to be recording. We talk on the phone. We talk on the phone every day. I love my mom. 
but we were talking about it and she didn't know that he was there. She was living in San Francisco at the time. She was very aware of the incident and what was going on and she didn't know that either. Raymond was there and after a minute of shooting, so they shot into this restaurant for a minute. And to some people, a minute doesn't sound like a long time. If you're fighting, a minute feels like a long time. You get shot at, a couple seconds feels like an hour. Time time does weird things when you're shot at. And I'll have an episode about that at some point. So these guys shot for a whole minute. None of the gangsters were hurt. None. Not one. Not Shrimp Boy. Not anybody. Not anybody that was an actual target got hurt, got hit, or got killed. Five people, rest in peace, died during this attack. Eleven people got injured. It started with one of the members of the Joe Boys just walking up to a random person, shooting them nine times. That's how this massacre, as it's known, the Golden Dragon Massacre. All of us in San Francisco know about it, that are from the city. Some of us have connections to it. It was tourists that were in there. It was random people that were in there. It was people, it's Chinatown is a touristy place. A lot of people, when they come to San Francisco for the first time, they do this in this order. Bridge, Pier, Chinatown. That's where they go. That might be all they see. They might go to Lombard Street because you kind of have to pass Lombard to get to the to Chinatown. So they might work that one in if they're you know carrying a map or some shit. That's who died. Nobody that was the intended target even got grazed. They were all sitting all in the back. They ducked under the tables. The Joe boys let their guns off. They ran off and these guys were totally fine. It brought a shit ton of scrutiny on the Joe boys and it pretty much killed them off as an organization. They no longer exist. The founder, Joe Fong, left before this time. The I believe he went to prison and then he came out and he said, you know, fuck this, I don't want to be a criminal anymore. He got his life together. He went to college and he's led a great life. So respect to Joe Fong, the author Bill Lee that I mentioned. He said after this, he got disillusioned and how could you not? And he left the gang as well. There By 1978, there were no more Joe boys. It was over. Maybe they might have existed by then. Not much longer. Watching Ascends during this time, the Hopsing Boys, they ascend during this time. And Mr. Raymond Chow, despite the fact that he came, he came, if he didn't have a brush with death, he had a front seat to death. And what his death could look like if he stayed in this life, despite this, he decided to rock on. The very next year, in 1978, Shrimp Boy was arrested for holding 23 members of the Chinese American Institute of Engineers hostage and trying to rob them. He got sentenced to 11 years in prison for this. He ended up doing seven years and four months and paroled in 1985. And what would become kind of a pattern of sorts, Shrimp Boy never really stayed out very long. The next year, in 1986, after being charged with assault with a deadly weapon and mayhem, he was sentenced to prison. I actually didn't know that mayhem was a crime. Like, I just thought mayhem just went like shit's going crazy and stuff. I didn't know it was a crime until somebody told me that they got charged with mayhem. So this was a dude that told me, shout out to him if he's listening. Yeah, man, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a lot of time, I'm looking at like 17 years. I got charged with mayhem and uh, trafficking. I was like, holy fuck. And, <laughs> and uh... Basically, if you get charged with mayhem, that means you maimed somebody. So this guy got into an altercation 
with, I believe, Raymond's sister-in-law. They started tussling or something. The guy was actually a gang member. He was a member of watching, and Raymond shot him. He shot him, and I don't know why they charged him 28 times with attempted murder. Sometimes if you shoot into, like, a house or you shoot into a crowded room or you shoot into a car, they'll charge you with attempted murder of everybody in the vicinity of whatever it is or inside the boundaries of that. So if he was in a room or some shit and there was 28 people there and he shot somebody in front of him, that's why he might have gotten such a crazy uh, count of 28 charges of attempted murder. And really, despite that being very serious, despite mayhem being serious, he only ended up doing three years. Now, mind you, I will clarify that by saying three years spent inside is still a really fucking long time. You're living essentially in a closet with another dude. When that guy takes a shit, your face is probably, if you're smart, you're going to sleep away from the toilet, but maybe you don't. Maybe you don't like having your head near the fucking bars because someone can get you. So you sleep with your back, <laughs> you know, your head to the back, and you got your face, you know, the toilet, this guy needs to take a shit. Three years of that is way longer than I'm willing to do. So I'm only saying he only got three years because those seem like very serious charges, and I'm very surprised he didn't get more time, especially considering he was a felon. He paroled in 1989, and he claimed he tried to go straight. He said he even got a job bagging groceries down in Daly City. So for people that don't know, Daly City is south of San Francisco, and it's like a suburban city, but there's like, I think, what, 100,000, 120,000 people there. So it's not a small area, but it is very suburban. It's out of the way of what's going on in the city, definitely out of the way of what's going on in Chinatown. It's its own universe out there. And he likely went down there just to get away from everything. He said he ended up losing his job because the San Francisco Gang Task Force who was formed in wake of the Golden Dragon Massacre, called him and told his boss, hey, you know, you got a, like a very dangerous gang member working there. You probably shouldn't do that. After that, he lost the job. He said that he got a job as a bodyguard uh, at a casino in Oakland. But who knows if that's true? Shrimp Boy said a lot of things. Not all of them were true. You never know. One way or the other, he ended up meeting a guy named Peter Chong. Peter, or as some people called him, Uncle Peter, was coming from Hong Kong, and he was a member of a triad called Wohop To. Whether he was sent here by Wohop To to take over the Chinatowns of America, or if he decided to do so once he came to America, who knows? That's what he ended up doing, though. That was his plan when he came to America, was take over crime in the various Chinatowns in America, start in San Francisco, and branch out. There's Chinatowns all across the country. Take over everything in all of them. And Shrimp Boy was his partner in this, in this venture. Ultimately, he oversaw day-to-day operations for Peter, as well as serving as the head of the Hop Sing Tong. When it came to their approach, Wu Hop To, Peter Chong, and Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow, they weren't looking to reinvent the wheel here. They were more than happy to let affiliated gangs, gangs that they partnered with, along with the Tongs that controlled these gangs, to do whatever they were going to do. If that was bootlegging, um, bootlegging movies. At that time, it would be DVDs and cassettes. It was bootlegging music, CDs. If it was prostitution, if it was drugs, if it was uh, selling fireworks, and if it was extortion, they would let them do that. I had a classmate who had a boyfriend that was a member of one of these gangs down in Chinatown at that time, and she broke down for me how extortion would work. She said that the gang would show up to like a restaurant or a business, like a barbershop or something like that, and either they would have 
like a symbolic item or they would perform like a symbolic action. So a lot of times they would bring like a money tree or they would do a lion dance and they would tell the owner of the business, yeah, we just did this for good luck. And if they didn't get paid for it, it would be bad luck for the owner because the guy get his shit burned down. So that's how extortion would work. Wolf Hop Toe would just collect the proceeds of this and direct the action and call the shots. And most importantly to something like this, select who was going to run what. And in addition to this money that they expected to skim off the top from operations from tongs and gangs and individuals, they still had all their own things going on that made them money as well. In this quest for the takeover of the Chinatowns of America, which started in San Francisco, there was early success and there was notable success. So that gang that I mentioned earlier, Wa Ching, Wa Ching was very powerful especially following the evaporation of watching ascends grows very powerful by 1991 watching the oldest and strongest chinese gang in san francisco that was a street gang they weren't in san francisco anymore they left san francisco they moved to la and it's interesting because when they were on the ascent there's a tong and i'm probably gonna fuck the name up but my bad named the sui sing tong i think that's how it's written in english my bad if I fucked it up. My bad. But the Sui Sing Tong was at war with the Joe Boys and Hua Ching for some reason. They just said, fuck them. Fuck both of you guys. Maybe they thought that the Joe Boys and Hua Ching were the same thing. The Hua Ching pressed the Sui Sing Tong to such a degree that they said, okay, to stop this madness between us, we're going to go move to Oakland. Ultimately, this would be the fate of Hua Ching. Hua Ching still exists down in LA, in the LA area. They fought a very violent gang war with the Asian boys that we'll possibly talk about at some point just because there's a phenomenon related to them. But I'm not trying to disrespect watching. I'm not saying that they fled or they did this or this. They, they moved. If I was in the position that they were and they're facing not just like a very criminalized, efficient street gang, they're facing an international army with thousands of people and tons of resources, multiple millions of dollars, tons of shooters. They did what they had to do to survive. Their leader was killed, and they made the smart decision to say, all this crazy shit you guys got going on, have at it, we're out of here. After San Francisco was consolidated, the next place that he would try to take over was Boston. He already had a partner there, and he had actually sent an emissary to establish a presence there for Wohapto. When this person was killed, there was an attempt that was spearheaded by Shrimp Boy to go to Boston and kill a guy named, I haven't been able to hear where this guy's name is pronounced. On paper, it looks like Bike Ming. It could be BK Ming, Mr. Ming. They tried to kill him. He was an organized crime leader in Boston, and it was not successful. And as I said, and as I've stated before, and as is part of Raymond's nature, seemingly, trouble with the law was always around the corner. In 1992, he was arrested at LaGuardia Airport carrying $12,000 in cash and not declaring it. He actually suspected, and this is interesting to our story, he suspected that somebody was informing on him, and he was able to correctly deduce who was informing on him. He had the woman beaten up once to send a message, and then he had her beaten up again, which would kind of come back to haunt him. It's just interesting that a guy that was willing to kill in one situation involving this guy in Boston, very ready to kill there, unready to kill an informant, were usually the first people to be killed. It's interesting. Why he was so willing to kill in one direction and not in another, we might not ever know. 
It wouldn't be long before the hammer would fall on the Wohawk-Toe enterprise. And in 1993, a racketeering indictment would fall over the entire group, but it was particularly focused on Uncle Peter and Shrimp Boy. Raymond found himself charged with murder for hire, drug trafficking, and illegal firearms charges. He faced two trials, and in the second trial in 1996, he would actually beat it. It was declared a mistrial. But in that first one, 1995, he found himself sentenced to 23 years. Somehow, Uncle Peter had slipped out a couple of days before the indictment was sealed. And he was able to get out of the country and flee back to Hong Kong and sit out for a little while before he was arrested by the authorities there. He'd get arrested, though. He'd get arrested, though, and he'd fight extradition for the next few years. When he's finally sent to the United States to face trial, he would find out that Shrimp Boy was testifying against him. He was going to be aiding the prosecution in their indictments against Uncle Peter and had turned against his former boss. And you have to ask yourself, what was his motivation for doing this? I'm sure the, the most readily available motivation would be he didn't want to do 23 years. He had already done seven years, which is a very, very long time to be inside of a prison. That's three times as much time. He might have said, that's way, 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 way too much time. I can't do it. And ultimately, after he testified against Peter Chong, he was released in 2003, which is a hell of a lot sooner than when he would have been up for parole or anything else like that. It could have been something else as well. Maybe he might have found Peter cutting out a couple of days before all this shit happens. He might have found that a little weird or a little suspicious. He could have been mad that Peter was actually out for the brief time that he was in Hong Kong, chilling out not in prison, not looking at a crazy indictment. Here Raymond was stuck in jail. There's also the possibility that Shrimp Boy thought that Peter would tell on him first. So he said, screw it. If I'm going to get told on, I might as well tell and strike a deal and get myself out of the situation. Regardless, either way, when Shrimp Boy was released in 2003, similar to when he was released in 1989, he tried to go and live a normal life. He had a place to stay. He stayed with his family. But he found out that he was unemployable. Like Nobody's going to hire Shrimp. He did get $2,000 a month as a stipend for his testimony against Peter Chong. And he was able to stay in the country. He wasn't a citizen. And especially following the 90s, California started deporting a lot of people that weren't citizens that were going to prison. If you ever think about like how gangs like MS have gotten to be so huge and how gangs that started in America ended up in El Salvador and Honduras and stuff... It's because we deported the people that are members of them. And you might also be saying $2,000 a month is good money. Uh, you can live on it, but you're not going to live on it in San Francisco. San Francisco is a ridiculously expensive place. Even then, even before the gentrification explosion and housing just fucking insanity, the insanity of prices, you wouldn't be able to live on much if you weren't living with your family two grand a month in San Francisco. He ended up having a mental breakdown in 2004 when he emerged from that. He was claiming that he saw the way crime wasn't the answer anymore. He was on TV talking about, no, I'm a reformed man, and I'm not doing this kind of stuff. Which, that's not really surprising. People do I, people do tell on themselves, especially now. It's, it's kind of funny. Like People go, like, yeah, I just caught a body. Look at him. I think that was on Worldstar the other day. I wasn't trying to see that. But uh, people, <laughs> people, tell, people tell on themselves a lot, but... Even though Shrimp Boy is kind of prone to saying crazy shit sometimes, that's even a bit much for him. But that's not the question here. A lot of guys, when they live that criminal life and they become witnesses against their crime partners or they turn state's evidence, a lot of them, they use that opportunity to leave the life behind. Some of them, you know, they become religious. They, they found these beliefs while they were inside 
and they want to live a better life or they're just tired. They're tired of ripping and running. They're tired of the stress of, of it all. They want to leave all that behind. They want to be safe. They want to be able to sleep at night and just not have this be the center of their existence anymore. I can, I can understand that. And then there are guys like Shrimp Boy who either become informants or they drop out of prison gangs and they still continue on as criminals. It could be seen as the only way that they can make a living or they lost part of themselves in the process of leaving their gang or telling or they lost some of their machismo, they lost some of their strength, they lost some of their killer instinct and they need to prove to people, yeah, even though I did this, even though I left this behind, I debriefed or uh, I became a witness, I'm still a killer. I'm still a man. I'm still this or that. Some of these people even join other gangs after completing the debriefing process. There's other gangs made up of people that have left these gangs. And even though they might join these other gangs or leave their gangs, they still might stay in contact with people they know from their own gang or the people that they used to do business with. And they do this despite the fact that informants supposedly have this like low regard that they're held in, that people are just shunning them and they're terminally in danger and they're never safe. This can be the case, but it's not always the case. And as we see with Raymond, it's not the case here. But once again, it's not the question I'm looking to ask. It's not the question that to me is central to this episode. That question is, it's not how does somebody that was an informant restart his criminal career? That's not the question. The question is this, how does somebody that was an informant regain criminal authority? Because it's not like he was just out here selling drugs on the corner or doing robberies or doing bank jobs or robbing jewelry stores. No, it's not like that. He was an authority figure. He was a guy that became an informant and resumed his life as an authority. It started with some seed money, or what he thought would be some seed money. He had a guy that he knew approach the Hop Sing Tong and kind of just deliver a message saying Raymond was asking for some money so he could start doing business. When the money wasn't forthcoming, four Tong buildings got splashed with red paint, but the Hop Sing Tong building was spared. When the Hop Sing Tong treasury ultimately denied the release, when they didn't give him the money, the building got shot up the next day. And a menacing letter got sent saying, how could you let the building get shot up? A man named Alan Leung was the president of the Hop Sing Tong and the dragon head of the Hung Moon Chi Kung Tong. He's a very well-known guy in Chinatown. He approached the FBI about Shrimp Boy after this, after the shooting. He also said that Shrimp Boy had told him that he was there to quote-unquote clean up Chinatown, meaning get rid of him and other people like him that were blocking his ascension to power. Despite approaching the FBI with these concerns, Alan Leung was not willing to cooperate with him any further, and he refused to wear a wire to record Shrimp Boy doing anything suspicious or illegal. Unfortunately, a year later, he was shot dead in his office on Jackson Street in Chinatown. Shrimp Boy led a salute to him at his funeral, wearing a white funeral suit. Shrimp Boy would also become the dragon head of the Chi Kung Tong after Alan Leung's death, as well as becoming the head of the Hop Sing Tong after expelling its former president. Beyond these moves that he was making in Chinatown, he actually started receiving awards from city and state officials, including Senator Dianne Feinstein, who were praising him for his quote-unquote anti-crime message and outreach work where he would go and he would go and talk to kids at kind of fucked up schools, like schools I went to. I remember when these guys would come by. And a lot of times I felt like the dudes that were telling us these stories, like there was a guy that got AIDS and it, it didn't sound like he was reliving the glory days. Like it didn't sound like he liked what happened and he was happy with what happened to him. 
he was trying to tell us, like, dude, watch the fuck out. You can catch this shit. Mission accomplished, my man. Like, <laughs> I was terrified of that shit. I wanted no parts of it. There was a guy that came to our school and told us about selling dope and how much money he was making and how he was living. He was down over off 2-4. He was, he was from my neck of the woods. And I was like, damn, this sounds like this fool still wants to sell drugs. Raymond was doing that kind of stuff. He was going to tell kids, don't be a criminal. Don't do this. Don't do that. Despite just trying to be uh, the most inspirational man, nicest guy on earth, he was still under federal watch. And the FBI were paying attention to him. They were watching him. They were watching him from his initiation into the Chi Kong Tong as its dragon head. They were there. Ultimately, they did more than watch him. They introduced a man that was presenting himself to be a representative, almost like a diplomat or an emissary from the Italian mafia on the East Coast. At first, Shrimpoy told this agent that he wasn't able to personally get involved in any kind of criminal activity, but he could introduce the agent to people who would. Later, though, he grew comfortable enough to tell him that nothing happened on a criminal level in the Qigong Tong without his approval. Shrimpoy would later launder millions of dollars for this agent and introduce him to San Francisco Board of Education President Keith Jackson, who, who was a corrupt official and also was a close friend and business partner of Senator Leland Yee. So Senator Yee spoke at my high school graduation. He went up there, and he was up there, I don't know, 20 minutes or 40 minutes, and he talked the entire time and didn't say a fucking thing in the whole speech. It was a fucking waste of time. I was like, why did they even bring this dude in here if he was going to come up here and give this bullshit-ass speech? Mind you, I went to a school called Independence High School, it was a continuation high school. Like, you had to kind of fuck up to get there. Not had, not kind of fuck up. Like, you had to fuck up to get there. I fucked up, so I got there. And so what? Like, so what if I fucked up? So what if I only had to go to school one day out of the week? We still deserve more than fucking that bullshit-ass speech that Lee Lenny gave. So, yeah, I was not impressed with them. I was not impressed with them. Like I said, I talked to my mom about them today. She wasn't impressed with them. She had to deal with them personally a couple of times. I said he was just very full of himself. He was so happy that Leland Yee was in the room right there with everybody, just his own biggest fan, and she couldn't, she just couldn't stand to be around the guy. These feelings that we had for Leland Yee, uh, they just fucking doubled when we found out he was being indicted for fucking weapons trafficking and money laundering. Yes, and this was done in concert with our subject, Mr. Raymond Shrimpoy Chow. I think it's pretty hilarious that Leland Yee, and I'm not a super gun advocate, I believe we should be able to have him. I believe that if you want to defend yourself with them, be smart about it. Don't be an idiot. I think you could do a lot of fucking harm with them. Some people have no business ha handling them. So I'm kind of somewhere in the middle when it comes to the whole thing, on that issue at least. And not in the middle when it comes to other <laughs> issues. But when it comes to guns, I have kind of a middle-of-the-road approach, surprisingly. Lee Nee was not like this publicly. He was very much in favor of some very strong gun control measures. And despite this public... I don't even know what you call it. This public need to talk about gun control and making gun control a central issue for him or an issue that he was very much adamant about. He took a hundred grand from a federal agent to buy some missiles from the Moral Islamic Liberation Front in the Philippines. And they were able to tie him to Shrimp Boy through their own investigation of him and all the bullshit that he was up to. And once again, the question has to be asked. If you're a corrupt official... A state senator at that, wouldn't you be kind of hesitant in doing business with somebody 
that has testified against his crime partner. Wouldn't you assume that he would just testify against you as well if he got caught? I mean, he wouldn't even have to get caught. Think about it. This is a very well-known criminal figure. This is somebody that's associated with organized crime. Why would you have anything to do with him, especially if you're doing dirt yourself and associating with this guy can bring your own enterprise down? Maybe kind of like that speech he gave at my high school graduation, he just didn't think about it much. However, this time, it would be the people that worked with Raymond, particularly his driver, who's nicknamed Fat Joe, that ended up testifying against him. Ultimately, Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow was sentenced to two life terms and is currently serving a sentence at USP Terre Haute, Indiana. Even with this ending, Shrimp Boy's story shows that snitches don't always get stitches. Sometimes they become kings. Hey everybody, I want to say thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. It's nice to talk about San Francisco, even though maybe it's not the coolest topic to talk about. It's still nice to have my frame of mind back there to tell you guys this story. And I'm going to do something like I did last week. So last week I brought you guys a personal story that's related to this story. This week I'm going to do the same. So after, we didn't get into it in this episode because it wasn't pertinent to the story, but... After everybody falls in the early 90s, after Peter Chong is gone, he's fighting extradition in Asia, Trent Boy's inside, there's a lot of chaos in Chinatown at this time. And a big war broke out between the Jackson Street Boys and the Hop Sing Boys. And I had a friend that was a Hop Sing Boy, and unfortunately, he was killed during this conflict. So we're going to talk about this and just how a, a really nice kid... A kid, a great kid, a very friendly kid ends up becoming a gangbanger and ends up getting killed. So we'll be talking about that this week. But next week, I'm going to be discussing the Colombian rebel group M19 and the danger at echo chambers. Once again, this has been Brain Drain and I'm Connor McCann. Thank you for listening.